We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is a message from the emergency stuffed crust warning system. Cheese! Little Caesars Extra Most Bestest Pizza now has three feet of cheese stuffed in the crust for just nine bucks. I repeat, it has three feet of cheese stuffed in the crust. Cheese! That concludes the message from the emergency stuffed crust warning system. Get a large Little Caesars Extra Most Bestest Pepperoni Stuffed Crust Pizza for $9. Top four national pizza chains. Extra Most Bestest Pizza versus large round one topping pepperoni pizza. Everyday standard menu prices. Three feet of cheese before cooking at participating locations plus tax. Pizza, pizza. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast, a special postseason edition after one of the craziest weeks that I can remember in college football. I'm James DiVirgilio alongside Alan Williams. Alan and I are going to break down all of last week's action for you. We're going to look at the playoff picture. We're going to grade the coaching hires and, and searches. We're going to talk about Dan Mullen's offense. We're going to talk about Todd Grantham's defense. We are going to go into the things that you listen to this podcast for and give you some answers to some of the bigger picture items. As always, if you like the content on this show, please... Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn and complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Head over to Facebook and drop us a like, or consider financially supporting us on Patreon. Thanks to all of our current and existing Patreon subscribers. We love and appreciate your support. Alan Williams, live from Moscow. How are you feeling this week, given that you just missed being stateside for the madness? 
Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I, you know, again, following this stuff from a distance um, is funny because I don't get to talk about it with people during the day. I only only electronically and through Twitter. But it is nice to have, you know, things like Twitter and you know a few messages here and there from people. Uh, I feel like I'm still participating somehow, but I kind of wake up each morning and wonder what crazy shiz happened last night. And usually I wake up to something special, specifically when it comes from Tennessee. So before we go into all the grades and everything, let's just talk about the madness. Can we talk about Tennessee for a second? I know Gator fans might have been feeling bad about their season, but uh, you can all say your prayers and say thank you that we are not the Tennessee Volunteers. Uh, James, uh, is this a dumpster fire, a tire fire, or a nuclear explosion? What's going on in Knoxville? <laughs> I really was enjoying the the bright orange or the Tennessee orange tire fire slash dumpster fire uh, analogies being thrown out all week. It was like a special edition of a of a bad situation. It's hard to explain what's gone on in Tennessee with any sort of rationality. First, you had the Greg Schiano situation, which I, I think, in a way, like we talked about uh, with several of my friends over this past week, is maybe the new paradigm we mentioned on this very podcast for coaching searches is that the, the fans themselves may have a say one day via outright protest. And that was weird enough, bad enough as it was. And then things took a turn for the truly bizarre when in the middle of the week you started to hear rumors about this coup going on, how Phil Fulmer is trying to take over. He's sabotaging Curry, the athletic director. And it culminates on Thursday night with the reports that Mike Leach is going to be the head coach of Tennessee. And I go to bed thinking, oh my gosh, after all of this disastrous scenario and circumstance, they're going to hire Mike Leach, who's a top 15 head coach in the college football ranks, even if he hasn't won anything. He's won at schools that you don't win at. They're going to get this guy. This is a guy I like. He's interesting. I love his offensive style. He's a fun person. And I'm like, this is a disaster for me personally. I'm very upset about this. But thankfully, Tennessee being Tennessee, I wake up on Friday morning, and what have I learned? <laughs> that Curry met with Leach in secret because he had to leave Tennessee without anyone else knowing about it, negotiates the contract, they're ready to agree, needs to go get his board's approval, and then Phil Fulmer and his henchmen go all Game of Thrones style and basically assassinate Curry and take over the throne in a fascinating overthrow. And then you hear a lot of defensive coordinators' names being thrown out. I think currently today, Allen, on Monday, uh, guys like Mel Tucker, guys like Brent Venables, guys like Chad Morris, an offensive guy at SMU, and all those guys could be potentially good hires. So it's very possible Tennessee gets a guy that even I may say I like that hire. But this has been, without a doubt, Alan, the most bizarre coaching search, concluding with a former coach kicking out an athletic director who actually had what I think would have been a great hire on the line because he wanted to have control. Just Sheer madness in college football. And thankfully, like you mentioned, Alan, we stole their original target, Dan Mullen. And you could say that Florida was directly responsible for the week of chaos that ensued. Because if we don't hire Dan Mullen, Tennessee hires Dan Mullen, John Curry still has his job, and we did not get to enjoy all of the craziness that went on last week. That's a big silver lining. Yeah. I certainly enjoyed it. I mean... It so I was trying to explain to one of my friends over here who doesn't know that much about college football what went on at Tennessee this week, and it was almost impossible. It took me like 10 minutes just to get to like the beginning of the story. I mean, it was 
<laughs> it's such a nightmare. I even just saw, I don't know if this is real. Um, I mean, this is three o'clock on Monday afternoon, East Coast time. Uh, that Fulmer had mentioned something about less miles. I have no idea if that's true or not, but I would love it. I would love Tennessee hired less miles. The comedy of that would be through the roof. Yeah, they almost ended up with Mike Leach, would have, which I don't know if it would have been successful, but I would have not have liked it, which means they probably should have done it. And, oh, man, who knows what's happening up there. Jimbo Fisher leaves FSU, signs a $3 billion contract, I think, if I'm correct on the terms, with Texas A&M. Uh, some people make smart hires along the way. A lot of uncertainty in a lot of places still. Gus Malzahn stays at Auburn after possibly flirting with Arkansas and then offering him a truckload of money. Uh, but he signs an extension, which is so Auburn. My head hurts, you know, after they want to fire him most of the season and then they give him an extension. I'm sure they'll be back to wanting to fire him after the spring game. It's, it's madness. James, I, what does this tell you about the state of college football right now? It's in, in my opinion, uh, soap opera-ish, drama-filled era. Uh, there are not other sports where this is occurring. Certainly in college basketball, you have you have scandals and you have you have you know shoe companies getting involved with young kids and coaches and that stuff. And that's that's one side of things. But the head coaching mania that is occurring in college football right now is really something interesting. The stories coming out of Tallahassee are borderline incredible. You have what we chronicled here on this very podcast, a very unhappy Jimbo Fisher, largely due to personal life scenarios, leaving Florida State. He's the second coach in college football history to leave a school where he had won a national championship. This does not happen often. There are rumors every year where someone is going somewhere else, and uh, we generally tell you on this podcast, don't believe it. It's not happening. Uh, and on this very podcast, we told you, hey, there's smoke here because Jimbo has had a really rough personal life. I mean, the rumors are that the athletic director punched Jimbo Fisher in the face after the Boston College game. Jimbo Fisher insulted his wife. Uh, Jimbo Fisher doesn't like the booster people. They don't like him. Uh, you know, his wife cheated on him there and ran rampant around town. I mean, it's really crazy stuff to think that a guy like Jimbo is going to go to Texas A&M. And then that adds to the craziness, Alan, because guess who won in Jimbo Fisher more than anybody else? LSU did. What do you think the LSU fans are feeling like right now? This was their guy. This is a homegrown guy. guy. They've wanted him for years. And now the magical window opens up a year after they hire Ed Orgeron, a guy they don't even really like. <laughs> I mean, it's just and less miles to Tennessee. I mean, the buyouts, the contracts, 10 years, $75 million to Jimbo Fisher, guaranteed money. Uh, we're in a really interesting state. Gus Malzahn loved and hated at Auburn. Half the fan base wanted him gone. Then after the Georgia game, okay, we missed these guys. It's fine. We'll keep him, whatever. We're in a really weird spot. And I want to say the success of guys like Dabo Sweeney now, uh, like Urban Meyer, and especially like Nick Saban have really tainted the sport in a, in a competitive balance way. And I'm all about competition. I think that those guys are upping the quality of college football on the field, but they're also upping the insanity of the people running these searches and trying to compete with them. Uh, and that that's the part we're witnessing now. It's the arms race for facilities. 
It's all the various reasons coaches come, go, stay, culminating Allen with, I think, a very insightful comment by Scott Frost. And I think when you zoom out and zoom back in, this is what's really going on here. Scott Frost said, like, mere minutes after winning his conference championship on the podium, tears are in his eyes. He's having a hard time dealing with this. And they ask him about going to Nebraska. And essentially, he says, you know, this is very difficult. I wish these things could wait until after the season is over. It's not fair to anyone involved to have to have these sort of discussions during the season. If you peel back the curtain there and you look at what went on with Scott Frost's life, it's clear he told both Nebraska and Florida he didn't want to talk until the season was over. And he tried that as best he could. And I'm sure Nebraska told him, quite frankly, last weekend, weekend before last weekend, rather, you're going to have to give us an indication if you're coming or not, and you're going to have to negotiate this now. You do not have a choice. Otherwise, we'll move on from you. And I think he did it even against his own will. So you have this sort of just poisonous, toxic scenario. You've got virtually year-round recruiting. You have out-of-control boosters. Uh, you've got power struggles. You've got Mike Gundy intentionally floating his name to other schools to get more money out of the school that he's at. Uh, it's about as dramatic as you can get right now with what's going on. Stability is not the norm craziness is. I'm not saying any of this stuff is negative right now. I think that college football is trying to get a footing. They're trying to get a footing. The market's trying to get a footing for how to handle this stuff. And these sort of things take a little bit of time. I think in the next five to 10 years, it will clarify itself a bit more. The arms race will continue. The competition will continue. But I think some of the zaniness we've been seeing with regards to buyout contracts and coaching situations are going to start to get better handled at the major institutions. The drama will always be there, but this seems to be, Alan, to me, maybe a peaking this season of of the of the madness of things that have been bubbling for a long time in college football. All of it is sort of coming out right now and the power struggle for teams that were good to become good again. Yeah, I don't see it stopping anytime soon. There might be a little bit of a bubble when it comes to coaching salaries. We'll see when these next TV contracts come up if that's going to change anything. I think the buyout hopefully will go away, but if you're competing at the top end, maybe you have to, if you're, if you're, if you're Nebraska and you're Florida and one's like, I'll give you a buyout and whether one won't, maybe that tips the scales. But if you're a lower tier institution and you're hiring somebody, giving a buyout is insane. You know, I think it's probably insane all over the place, but I can understand why it gets done. And then I think you're going to keep seeing Football be at the center unless something dramatically changes either from a health or legal standpoint. Because think about a school like UCF. Now, let's go back to before they had a somewhat thriving football program. Uh, there's another school in the state of Florida that I'm very familiar with, the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. Comparable institutions academically. Actually, I'd say UNF is probably a better school in some sense, which is more known and which one has started to ascend UCF. And I think a lot of that is due to their commitment to the football program. There's a million universities in the United States, not a million, but a lot. And some of these ones that, you know, you always will have your Ivy league and some schools that are just amazing academically, but these schools that want to raise their profile and raise their, um, their admission rates and their application rates and all these things, football has been proven way to do that. And so you're going to, you're going to see people keep shelling out money for a top tier program. 
So I don't know. I don't expect the insanity to go away in time. It's part of what I love about college football. It's crazy. People are passionate. People are willing to spend their hard-earned money to fire somebody else's employee. So uh, <laughs> as nutty as it might be, as I mean, there, there are negatives, of course, but I love the insanity of it. Okay, James, let's go ahead and get to grading these coaching hires. We're going to walk down the list of people who have already made an official hire. We're going to talk a little bit about the state of some of the ones who haven't yet made a hire. Um, let's start with UCLA, James. Chip Kelly, give me your grade on that. Well, and you know, one last comment as I'm thinking about UCLA and I'm thinking about Alabama and I'm thinking about what you just said. From a branding standpoint, there's a reason why coaches are the highest paid state employees in virtually all of the states that care about football. Uh, and it's because they generate the most interest monetarily, which is what you're saying, Alan. It's very true. And, and think for the state of Alabama for a second. Eliminate Alabama football and tell me how often you hear anything about the state of Alabama. Now, right now, you've got a political scandal going on there, but really just pause and think about it. Then think about how often as someone who even follows sports casually, you hear about that state. That's the power of a head football coach in college football in America. And that's why we're having the craziness like you're mentioning, Alan. That's also why people are so willing to go bonkers over this at a university because presidents may act like, oh, I'm so bummed out. This should be about academics, but they know that what we just said is in fact very true, especially for a large majority of states, unlike the state of Florida, which is going to be known for other reasons like Disney World, beaches, travel, etc., that Alabama gets the best exposure uh, for being a football team, essentially. So UCLA, a city that's not like that, right? I mean, in a city that's not like that in LA, uh, UCLA is sort of just a, a thing in a city that's known for a bunch of other stuff. So one of the reasons Chip Kelly goes there I grade this higher as an A++++. Yes, Chip Kelly wants to go to the NFL. Yes, Chip Kelly thinks going to UCLA is the fast way to get back to the NFL. I don't really care. If you're UCLA, your job is to hire a coach that wins, and that's what you just did. You hired a guy who dominated the Pac-12. I have no reason to think he will not dominate that conference. Again, if you get him for three or four years, it's an absolutely worthy hire. It's nonsense. There are people out there that think that hiring a guy for three or four years is some sort of bad situation. Uh, yeah, hello. How many schools have won national titles in the past 15 years? Look that up. Could you, would you hire a guy to win one in four years and then let him go? Yeah, you would. So maybe UCLA gets it done. But A++ for me, Alan. What do you got? Yeah, A+. I mean, that was the dream guy, and they hired him. He's really overqualified to be at a place like UCLA except for the intangibles really drew him there. And I, and we've talked about that a lot, but amazing job by them to really push all their chips in the center of the table, fire a guy in Jim Mora who they still owed a lot of money to. And if they don't get Chip Kelly, they look pretty dumb. They made it happen. He's their coach. I would expect big things out of them pretty quickly. I mean, I think they'll be improved year one. They should be really intriguing year two. Okay, Nebraska hired our boy, Scott Frost. This one hurts. The more I watch Scott Frost, the more I really love that guy. Just a high character, seemingly strong guy. Uh, amazing hire for Nebraska. They fell into this one. I think that Scott Frost is like mixed on even going to Nebraska, judging by his emotions. I don't think he wants to live there. I'm not even sure he wants to coach there wholeheartedly. 
Uh, but I think he felt the call to have to go home and rescue his team. And so this is like the hero that's far away and is happy where he is, but he has to go home to rescue the homeland. That's kind of how I feel about this, but that's an A++ hire for Nebraska. Uh, even if Scott Frost doesn't become what I think he will be at Nebraska, as far as hires go, you take the limited information you have and you make the best hire you can. And to hire a guy who's from your state, who played at your school, who played under your legendary coach, uh, it doesn't get any better than that for them. So I'm sure Nebraska Nation is just ecstatic uh, at what's coming up for them this Christmas and beyond. Yeah, I'll if I said A plus for Chip Kelly, I'll say A plus 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 however many pluses you want to put on there for Nebraska. You're right. The timing of this was unbelievable. They had a guy from their family, I guess, coaching tree, come available when they were ready to fire Mike Riley. I mean, is as fortuitous as it gets. And the fact that he went ahead and chose to go there. Now they offered him a lot of money. There's a lot of you know, other factors in there, but it's amazing for them that they would have never hired this caliber of a candidate if he wasn't from there. So maybe uh, if you're UF, you just start trying to recruit as many people as possible into coaching. So you have more people out there who you could hire when it comes time to fire your coach or replace them or whatever. Yeah, this is fantastic for Nebraska. I'm excited for them. Um, they're a program, I think, that has a really passionate fan base and, you know, I think would appreciate a winner. Um, so, I don't know, tough to see us lose out on Scott Frost because it would have been exciting, but great hire for them. Okay, next up on the list, Texas A&M. We've talked about it. Steals, I guess, Jimbo Fisher. It, on one hand, it seemed inevitable. On the other hand, it seemed... That can't possibly happen because it never does. But there he is, Aggie Nation. Yeah, this is an incredible hire. Another A++ hire. Uh, there's a lot of Gator fans that are asleep at the wheel on Jimbo Fisher. I get text messages from from friends about how Jimbo Fisher's only won because he had a certain quarterback named Jameis Winston. That Jimbo Fisher isn't good. That Jimbo Fisher can't do this. That he's asleep at the wheel here. They're just wrong is the bottom line. They're just flat out wrong. And I think that Jimbo Fisher is going to have a tremendous chip on his shoulder. Jimbo Fisher lost focus with this team for the past two years. We've chronicled it. We've said it. We've talked about the personal issues. It's not new to us, and it shouldn't be new to you as listeners of this podcast. The Jimbo Fisher going to A&M is a fresh start Jimbo Fisher. He's starting over, and he's going to be angry. I think he's very frustrated with what he's dealt with. I think he's frustrated with the landscape of his own personal life. And I don't think he has any desire to coach anywhere else in the future other than at a place where he can have personal peace. If that happens to be A&M, they've got a great coach for a long time. I love his offensive style. Uh, everything about what he does fits Texas perfectly, perfectly. Texas is a great state for running backs and quarterbacks, and that's what his offense is heavy on. I think he can still recruit the state of Florida, given his, his inroads here. Um, I, I'm sure he wishes in his heart of hearts he could be at LSU. I think that's for real. Maybe you potentially see him jump at LSU, but the contract A&M gave him almost prevents that from happening. And that's kind of why they did it. I think they knew LSU would be the prime target. So great hire there. And to the Gator fans who think like Jimbo's not very good, just watch what happens at A&M. But the SEC West now has just gotten a gajillion times more difficult. You've got Gus Malzahn, Nick Saban, and now Jimbo Fisher in there. That is amazing in one division of college football to have those guys going after each other. I'm very happy that the East still seems to be more or less a dumpster fire at this point in time. But wow, what a hire for AM. I'm sure they're giddy about it, and they should be. And they're spending 
every dollar they have to to make it work. But I think Jimbo is going to be fantastic there. I don't buy into this concept that he was a one player coach. Yeah, I'm I'm happy that he's gone. I mean, they, whatever you think about his success, he definitely had our number. So, you know, goodbye, good luck over there. You know, I wouldn't mind seeing some new blood. You know, over there in the SEC West, uh, it's we don't have to play him every year. That's that's amazing. And so, of course, I guess we conceivably, you know, we play A and M once every fifteen years or whatever it is on the SEC schedule. I don't know what it actually is, but. Yeah, the, we won't see him very often, except for in the SEC title game. And if we're there, that's good news. So, great hire for AM. They've, again, pushed all their chips in the middle of the table here. And obviously, have bet big on Jimbo Fisher. And AM is a sleeping giant here. I mean, if it's the right coach, the right, have the resources, the fan base, the recruiting ground, everything, this is a really interesting. I think. The reason the SEC has been down, quote unquote, down, you know, two teams in the playoff this year, but the overall level is not what it was in the mid 2000s, is that the coaches are not as good. And that's easy. That's the number one reason. It's the obvious reason. But we're starting to get a maybe a change here, an influx of some talent. And uh, I think it starts with Jimbo Fisher. Okay, another interesting coach out in the West. Mississippi State hires your boy Joe Moorhead, the offensive coordinator from Penn State. Oh, I love this hire. And that's not a surprise to anyone. A plus, 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 plus. And again, he may not work out, but this is exactly what you do if you're Mississippi State. You hire a guy like Joe Moorhead, that they understand their profile, they understand where they are. And they're showing, I'm, I'm biased, obviously, here, but they're showing to me a tremendous amount of football savvy because Joe Moorhead was not on other people's coaching radar, not that we knew of. Yes, he was one of the hottest offensive assistants, but hopefully as long-term listeners of this show, you get the value of listening to the show in the first place, is that we kind of view football a little bit differently than a lot of the other media does, and we're able to identify a guy like Moorhead, not because he's getting pressed, but because of what the X's and O's are doing on the field. Just so happens he was also very successful at Fordham. Yeah, who's Fordham? What's Fordham? A small school? Who cares? I love this hire. I love the offense Joe Moorhead runs. I think he's an amazing hire for Mississippi State. And again, he could flame out within three years. Those are two separate discussions, right? You have to hire the guy based upon a limited info. But that's an exciting hire to me if I'm a Mississippi State fan. I go from Dan Mullen to Moorhead. I'm excited about the team. I'm excited about the future. This guy is a juggernaut of offense. And uh, I think it was brilliant by them. Maybe the best handled coaching search because they didn't have any connection to Moorhead. Uh, you know, UCLA had the front runner with Chip Kelly. Nebraska obviously had all the connection with Scott Frost. AM, you know, pulled hard for Fisher. That was an, obviously a great pull, but this one, this hire, may have been the most creative and uh, fantastic. I mean, great. This one off the charts. I love what they did with Joe Moorhead there. I'll give an A, too. I agree with you. I, this isn't Tennessee chasing John Gruden, you know, spinning at windmills, guys that they're probably never going to hire. They went out, you heard nothing about it, and they got their guy. And you know, I'll give this an A, A minus, just because, you know, there's a large chance that he doesn't know what he's doing with recruiting or managing a program of that size. But I love it. It's it's about the best you could hope for if you're Mississippi State. It's at least intriguing. It sells hope. Um, I think they're going to be really fun on offense. Maybe they flame out everywhere else. But 
Um, at least they're going to be creative and push the envelope. And I think Mississippi State is probably really happy about that hire. Okay, we've given a lot of glowing reviews so far, a lot of good grades. Uh, James, Arizona State hired Herm Edwards. And if you're thinking, wait, who? Uh, I think NFL broadcaster, studio analyst, former longtime NFL head coach, hasn't coached in college in a million years. I think he's 63 years old. Um, and you know from the quote is, you play to win the game. Uh, James, is there something lower than an F that I can give this? Abysmal, horrific, tone deaf. I guess they're trying to think outside the box. You know, they paid a ton of money to fire Todd Graham, and this is what they do. I don't know. This feels like almost a practical joke that they're going to come out and say, oh, just kidding. We didn't really hire Herm Edwards, but James, they did. What are you, what grade are you giving this? Oh, this is an F. This is maybe lower than an F. This is so incredibly bad uh, for a lot of reasons. One is that Herm Edwards hasn't coached football. I believe Alan in a decade. I think that's the accurate number, right? At all period. There's a reason why he wasn't coaching football. And hint, it's not because he was living the John Gruden lifestyle and wanted to be a broadcaster. It's because he whitewashed out of the NFL and he was done. There's plenty of reports of Herm just not really being there anymore at the end mentally uh, in the way a head football coach needs to be. Players didn't respect him, couldn't put together good packages. He's a nice guy. I mean, I think as a human being, he's a nice dude. You know, He's just not there. Uh, and, and to hire him as a college football coach... When he hasn't done that in forever is beyond me. I don't care what your strategy is or what you think you're trying to accomplish or you're creating some new paradigm. He's not even a splash name. He's a name where you hear it and go, what? And that would be shocking if that doesn't end up with anything other than Herm Edwards getting fired in three years or four at the most. Really bad hire. If I'm an Arizona State fan, that's like the end of my football fandom until they hire someone else. I mean, it's, I guess what they're trying to do is create like a football CEO. I think they kept the rest of their coaching staff and our recruits supposed to be excited about Herm Edwards walking in the room, walking to their house just because he was on TV. I don't know. Bad, bad, bad. I mean, maybe it works, but I think it's like a 1% chance that this flies and I see him, being gone in probably two to three years because I think it's going to flame out so spectacularly. Okay, Ole Miss hired Matt Luke, their interim coach after the Hugh Freeze debacle. You kind of liked this hire, didn't you? I love this hire because Ole Miss knew when they hired Matt Luke that essentially they were going to get hit with something, and they didn't know what it was yet. And they hired him six and six season this season, which was – against all odds. I mean, that's that's incredible. Old Miss had a better season than we did, and they played in the SEC West. Just think about that for a second. And they're about to get hit with more sanctions, more scholarship reductions. Nobody's going to take that job. So why not take a guy who somehow kind of righted the ship this year? I mean, whatever. Let him maintain it until you're out of the probationary area. And if he's done an amazing job, give him more chances. But I thought this was a fantastic hire that people are not going to talk about. Uh, it maintains consistency. It actually builds momentum. I think you can go on the recruiting trail and say, hey, look, we went six and six. 
And yeah, we're down scholarships and yeah, we're struggling. Uh, but he might be able to get some of these guys to to maintain six and six records each year. But I thought that was a great hire. I'm going to give that hire an A plus, uh, given where they were as a program and what has gone on post the Hugh Freeze era. I'm going to go the other way and give this a C. I the NCAA sanctions came down pretty close after they hired him, and I, I didn't think they were that bad. Uh, now I didn't didn't do a deep dive into this. But I think they could have gotten somebody better or somebody with at least a higher ceiling. Okay, we just listed off the coaches in the SEC West. It's hard for me to imagine Matt Luke toppling these guys. Now, maybe they couldn't have gotten anybody better. But I would have loved to for them to hire a guy with just rocket ship potential. And if they bust out, they bust out you know, a much higher variance coach. It just feels like they're going to be six and six for the next two years. And then you're going to be like, I don't know. Hiring the interior interim coach rarely works out. Um, it feels like, you know, they did it because it felt safe and that they did a little bit better than they expected. I'm not a fan. Uh, I think Ole Miss had some money to spend because they got, actually got to fire their coach rather than pay him the buyout. I think they could have attracted somebody just with the dollars alone. So maybe I'm being naive about that, but, I didn't love it. So that's disagree there a little bit. Okay, some unfilled openings. Let's start with Arkansas. James, do you have a pick who for my who might go there? What do you think is happening there? I have no real idea what's happening at Arkansas. I probably followed this job opening the least because it's the one that really I feel like affects Florida maybe the least. And Matt Luke of Old Miss is just sort of a low hanging fruit situation. Uh I'm not sure what to think about that program in general. I think you can win there because people have won there before. It's certainly hard to recruit there. <laughs> Alan, it seems to me that if you're looking at the SEC West right now and you're a head football coach, it's sort of a death sentence to go to Arkansas. How the heck are you going to compete with A&M, Alabama, and Auburn? I I don't feel comfortable about well, it. If it were me, I would say... Mm, I don't really want to go to Arkansas. I'd probably rather go somewhere else because you're only going to get three or four years max. And I think that's the reality of these head coaches now. You're seeing them stay at the places they're at because if you come to the SEC, each and every school, maybe with the exception of Vanderbilt, Kentucky, and Mississippi State, think that they can win and should be winning SEC championships. And if that's the expectation, that is a buzzsaw to walk into. Nice program. Again, you can win there. I don't know. I don't really have a good feeling about it other than to say I think head coaches would have pause given the competition they are going to face in that division. I don't know. I kind of like this job. I think it's a a sneaky good job. It's a little bit of a sleeper out there. You're right. The competition is tough, but you are somewhat close to Texas. You're somewhat close to Louisiana. It's not a recruiting hotbed, but I think God, you can get guys to go there. You know, you, they've had stars there. You know, I think the reason this job's been quiet is they were waiting on Gus Malzahn. They were backing up the Brinks truck to hire him. He said no. I think you're going to hear some more on this. This is the place that feels like a Mike Leach landing spot. Like, why not? Um, and then the other guy who I think all along, maybe I've mentally slotted into this spot, is Mike Norvell. James, he hasn't gotten the kind of push that we thought. What's the scuttlebutt behind that? 
Well, I was going to save this when we walked through the the Strickland sort of what was the order of operations, but let's just put that out there now as a spoiler alert. So Mike Norvell, a guy we talked about a lot, a guy that was hot in the Florida coaching search early on, apparently fantastically failed the Florida vetting process. Now, this is rumor. This is not something I can confirm, but it, it makes sense when you look at how Mike Norvell's name has been suspiciously absent from all the coaching hires when all he did was have a phenomenal year taking UCF to double overtime and losing twice only to UCF. Uh, Obviously, intriguing candidate. Apparently, he's got a lot of infidelity concerns with regards to women outside of his own marriage, and he's got a lot of issues with authority, tends to be the rumor. Again, these are rumors. You can look them up for yourself, but just note that his name has really not been floated since we heard that Mike Norvell was X'd off of Florida's list very early on in the process because of all of the character references that he had that were essentially failures. Uh, and I think that may be true elsewhere. So it will be interesting to see if Arkansas decides to dig a little deeper, maybe have a serious conversation with Mike Norvell here. So we're hearing about you. Uh, don't do this, you know, cross your fingers and hope. I don't know. But Yes, Alan, Mike Novell or Mike Leach to Arkansas makes a lot of sense. That's the kind of guy I think you need to win there. Uh, Mike Leach especially, he's won at a lot of funky places. I don't know, again, that Mike Leach wants to subject himself to competing against those other guys in Arkansas. Maybe he does. He's a competitive dude. But I'm just not sure. That job, I think, like we said, good facilities. Uh, they can win. They can recruit. That's more of a narrative of the current state of the SEC West right now than it is of Arkansas in and of itself. Uh, And that's, I think, why Ole Miss maybe chose to just hold steady with Matt Luke is because they do have 13 reduced scholarships. They can't go to the postseason next year. It's hard to imagine they got like a Joe Moorhead type guy to go there. I think those guys would have waited. Arkansas can get those guys, Alan. The question now is, would they want to do it? So that will be an interesting coaching search to follow. And Mike Norvell certainly would be a great candidate, I think, to hire for Arkansas. Uh, if that's the case, and he can pass a character reference test, which we're hearing apparently he can't. So keep an eye on that one. And maybe you just some people are willing to ignore that. So maybe he gets a job anyway. Uh, or maybe it's not true. So, again, speculation, not reporting anything here on the podcast. All right, FSU suddenly has a coaching opening. Seemingly Willie Taggart, the heavy betting favorite, to end up as coach there. If that happened, would that concern you? It's it's weird. Taggart has a losing record as a head coach. He's never won anything as a head coach. At Western Kentucky, took a bad team, made them 7-5, and five, then left, went to USF, and they were bad, and left with you know a record that was solid. But it's, it's weird. I mean, he's 47-50 as a head coach. He's a phenomenal recruiter. That's where he excels. If you give him a superhero power, that's what it is. Oregon currently is the highest they've ever been ranked in recruiting, uh, thanks to him. I think he is coming to Florida State, which means obviously he was serious about leaving Oregon. And I'll go ahead and take take that right now that I thought, hey, the guy's been there for one year. He's not leaving. But the personal stories for him must be true as well. A lot was made about his family. They don't want to go to Oregon. They can't visit Oregon. His parents can't get there. Uh, he doesn't want to be there. It was truly like a step up in profile for him. And I imagine for a guy like Taggart, Florida State's a dream job. He's a Florida guy. He wants to recruit. And Florida State's probably 
the best recruiting job in the state of Florida historically. And I hate to say that because I want to say at Florida that we can recruit better. But the reality is Florida State's just recruited better for us for a long time. They tend to appeal to a certain athlete that Florida maybe doesn't always appeal to. Uh, And that's a lot of stereotyping. But on one hand, I'm afraid because Florida State will be loaded with athletes and that tends to beat us. When Florida State's loaded with athletes, we just tend not to win. Uh, But secondarily, I don't think he's a great football coach. I think he's a great offensive mind. I think he's a great recruiter. I don't know that he's a great program builder. And at Florida State, he's got to compete with Dabo Sweeney, Mark Rick. He's got to compete now with with Mullen, who I think is a good program builder, and others. But I'd much rather see them hire someone else. How about that? So I'm sort of like on the fence. I could see reasons this could be really bad because Florida State, I think, will finish top three or four in recruiting every year. And I could see ways where they underachieve with that talent. But I think that would be a good hire for Florida State, uh, sort of bouncing around, looking at who's available. I could see why that would be the guy they're targeting, first and foremost. Yeah, it feels like that's the only guy left on their radar. I don't know who they would hire if it's not him. I think that's partly why he's such a heavy favorite to go there. Now, he could decide he's not doing that. He likes where he's at at Oregon. It could be a lot of smoke there in terms of, you know, like you said, his family stuff or whatever. Um, FSU is a decent job. You know, you're in the ACC, but you get to recruit Florida. I don't know. If they don't hire him, what happens? It It kind of drags on for a little bit here. So I would expect to hear some news from that soon with that looming recruiting date i don't know uh i'm with you it's on one hand kind of scary for the reasons you mentioned with recruiting but he doesn't strike fear into me this is not them in reverse like landing jimbo fisher from texas a&m or like picking up somebody like a harbaugh or i don't know even bringing in somebody from the nfl who's a high profile guy who would be like i don't know if you can do it but i'm scared if he gets it going. So I would be okay with that hire. I mean, of course they're going to hire somebody decent because it's a high profile job. It's a place you can win a national championship, but yeah, they, they're, they're not in a great spot with this hire. They're late in the game and there's not a ton of good options out there for them. It'd be interesting to see what happens moving forward. Okay. Tennessee, we've talked about them. Do you have any kind of prediction? I don't, I don't even know if you can. I mean, I mean, is there anybody that they would hire that would actually shock you? I like actually the names they're floating around now. I think that Phil Fulmer has brought, after running off Mike Leach, who would have, like I said, that would have been sad for me. I would have not have liked that hire as a Florida fan. I think the names he's floating now are solid. Uh, you can even make a case that Les Miles is a solid float. I mean, all the guy does is win double-digit games. He's infuriating and he's frustrating. We had a hard time beating him every year. Uh, so let's assume it's Les Miles, Brent Venables, Chad Morris of SMU, who's solid. I think Mill Tucker of Georgia would be a guy I would love for them to hire. That would be great for us. He'd be another, I think, not good hire. Uh, so I take that. Um, but I think if he hired Venables or he hired Chad Morris or even Les Miles, I think those would all be fine hires. I think Chad Morris would be a great hire uh, as far as Tennessee's at. So I think there's a chance that they pull somebody that's actually decent out of this whole thing none of those guys scare me per se like you just mentioned with Taggart uh and and to go back to Taggart for a second the best case scenario for Florida fans is Taggart stays at Oregon I think that's highly unlikely 
But if he did, then you're in the situation where you've got to hire a really unproven guy and most of those sexy guys are are gone, or at least the sexy guys that would make sense are sort of already gone. So crossing my fingers for Taggart not to go to Florida State, but I think he'll be there, Tennessee. I, I wouldn't want to see Chad Morris go there. I think he's solid. I'd like to see somebody else go. That made me feel better. But I do think that Phil Fulmer seemingly is taking some logical steps looking at coaches right now, and, and I think it makes some sense. So maybe they're going to come out of this thing feeling okay about who they hired. But regardless, Alan, a tremendous amount of damage has been done to the brand in the short term. You got to think if you're a recruit right now and you were on the fence about Tennessee, you probably let that ship sail. I don't think they can hire a guy that gets you excited enough. You know, Chad Morris and Brett Venables aren't going to get you amped up if you're a player if you can go somewhere else. So I think they've missed that boat, which is good for Florida fans. And and obviously, you never know, right? It's a Tennessee coaching search. Maybe all of a sudden, things will go crazy and Phil Fulmer will have to take over as head coach and he'll bring in T. Martin as his assistant and they'll go back for the 90s glory days. Who knows? That <laughs> that's, that's been his plan all along. Yeah, Chad Morris is interesting. I think he was probably waiting on that Texas A&M job to see what was going to happen there think he would have been the guy there had they not been able to lure Jimbo away that's the hire I would not like to see them make Tucker I think I would that doesn't scare me in the slightest he might be fine Venables probably you know I think he'd get up and running um he's an interesting guy if they hired Les Miles I mean I'm sure it would come back to bite me in the butt because he'd do something dumb that would work out in his favor to beat us but that seems like a total like just panic move i mean the guy is older than you think he is he already got dropped at a place is he going to be better at tennessee than he was at lsu i don't think so and i don't think that's going to be good enough so that would be fine by me i mean tennessee and we didn't even mention the whole they tried to hire away nc state's dave doran who's basically the butch jones of the acc like an okay record like they might be a, it feels like they're not that happy for with them you know but they're nc state so what can they really do <laughs> oh man this has been such an amazing week with that and you're right i think they have done some real damage and i don't think there's a guy out there who can resuscitate them in a with a quick fix all right we haven't done this one yet let's do University of Florida, they hired someone named Dan Mullen. Give me a grade on that, James. I'm going to give this a grade and then a clear explanation. And that's going to be quick because obviously last podcast, you sort of heard me emotionally be super frustrated and depressed. If you listen until the all the way after the post credits of the podcast, you heard the sounds of silence by Simon and Garfunkel playing in the background. That was a little <laughs> bonus, a little Easter egg for you. <laughs> so... It's mixed. I think as far as a hire goes, knowing the information that we now know, knowing who we actually talked to, knowing who we went after, I think this hire is a B plus, A minus as far as what you were dealing with. We went after Chip Kelly, couldn't get him. Went after Scott Frost, couldn't get him. Vetted Mike Norvell, uh, apparently looked into you know Campbell and Fuente. Their bios were too high, much like we talked about, too difficult to actually get to. Uh, at some point in time, you say, okay, then who are you left with? We're not going to get Jimbo Fisher. That wasn't realistic. Couldn't get him at all, right? Uh, Taggart, I think, is not as good of a hire as Mullen. 
even though I probably like his offensive style better. And then Joe Moorhead, who's my guy, he's not ready for a job at the University of Florida. As much as I love that guy, you can't make that higher. So I say it's a B plus only because personally, personally, Dan Mullen is not going to motivate the fan base the way Chip Kelly and Scott Frost would. Those are your A-level guys. And even though you couldn't get them, because you couldn't get them, I think it prevents you still from being an A. Although I think Strickland did, Allen all he could do here. I think he did the best job he could. I give Strickland an A-plus on the job he did. I give Mullen a B-plus on the hiring because we couldn't get the elite guys. No fault of anyone. I think there were perfectly good reasons for Chip Kelly and Scott Frost to go where they go. I do not think the Florida brand is tarnished at all. I don't think that's a proper narrative. I don't think it's a job that's not as desirable as it once was. I think people had individual reasons not to come to Florida. Nothing to do with the job. I think both of them would say Florida was a better job than Nebraska and UCLA. So with all that being said, I go B plus because of Mullen. You get a solid guy. You get a guy that knows Florida. You get a guy that's excited to be here. You get a guy we mentioned about all the reasons last week. And ultimately, if I loved the spread option offense, Alan, if I thought that was the best way to win in college football and I enjoyed watching it, I'd probably grade this higher. And that's the caveat that I give. It's a B plus because I feel like the offense schematically and theoretically is not something that I think can consistently beat the best teams. And I really personally just dislike the philosophy. So I am inserting that into my grade. Let that be known. Uh, if you love the spread option, you probably think this is an A higher now at this point in time. So for me, I go B plus for all those reasons I mentioned. I think Strickland gets an A plus for how he handled the search and what he did. I felt like we made the best of the situation we were dealt. Yeah, that's a good point. It's funny when you said B plus, A minus. I'm like, that's kind of where I'm at. But I'm going to lean slightly higher than you then would say a minus which it's funny it's a little surprising to me that i would be as high as i was on that like if i actually sit down and grade it out it's like i got you know a term paper from somebody i'm a teacher and i'm like oh this is not going to be very good and i kind of read him like well i guess it's kind of like an a minus you know you're right if we weren't going to hire a mike norvell and then we sit down like the like the little game we played last week is he really a better candidate than these guys and kind of yes and we seems like we did have some kind of contact with Mike Gundy, who I know was big time on your list. And we just didn't really have a shot at Kelly and Frost that they weren't going to come here. And the only reason it's not higher for me even is some of the reservations I have with um, kind of just really Mullen's ceiling. And we're going to get into some specifics on that. But, yeah, it's it's tough because – there is room for growth there. It's not a bad hire. It's actually probably the best hire we could make. And for that, it feels like even low, maybe wrong to even a minus, but I think the buzz that would have been with this program, had we been able to hire Frost or Kelly would just been through the roof. Florida would have been the it program. And now just feel like we're solid. We're moving forward. Things are good. Things are happening, but we're not exploding. And we had a chance to touch that and see that and have it just up close and personal, like feeling like, oh man, this is going to happen. And it doesn't, it's a little disappointing. So looking at the hire of Dan Mullen, there's a Pat Dooley article where Strickland basically lays out the process and says that Dan Mullen was always his first choice. This is not a surprise, I think, to you and I, Alan. We said as much in the pod mid-season as soon as we fired McIlwain. 
that Strickland worked with Mullen don't believe for a second that Mullen's not his first choice. But the search committee went ahead and did its job, and they aggressively pursued the others. I think that narrative is true. I think the story makes perfect sense, and I think that Strickland is being real when he says that he thinks Dan Mullen is the best. Keep in mind that athletic directors don't always know a whole lot about X's and O's in football, which is why they make bad hires. And and Strickland, I think, showed a lot of CEO savvy as a leader to let the committee vet out those names you just mentioned, Alan, those home run names that launched the fan base into a different level before just settling on his guy. I thought that was beautiful. I don't want to keep harping on how good I thought that was. So with that, we recorded last week just before Dan Mullen's actual initial press conference. Most of you have already thought about this, commented on this, taken your reactions from it. We have not. We're going to give you our quick takeaways. This is a little bit in the rearview mirror of what that press conference was, maybe how it felt to us. And then we're going to take a look specifically at what a Dan Mullen-led offense and defense looks like and whether we like or dislike that, which talks a little bit, Alan, of what you just mentioned with regards to maybe some of his ceiling thoughts. So, Alan, your thoughts on Dan Mullen's initial press conference as the Florida head coach? You know, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed him. You know, my impression of him when he was at UF, especially as the offensive coordinator, is that he wasn't really that impressive of a guy. I think that's somewhat lingering for me through this process and we hired him it was like, yeah, he's a good coach, but I don't know how excited I am about him. He just feels like kind of like a dude, but I like the things he talked about. I liked his honesty. I liked his straightforwardness. He didn't have some of the same, I guess if I'm comparing, comparing to McElwain, the smugness that we talked about with McElwain or kind of the faux aw shucks persona that really graded on a lot of people. And not that Mullen is a saint or that he's, you know, the world's greatest communicator. He's not a Mike White kind of level interview, but he did the job. And I think he's focused on the right things. Um, He was honest about some of the stuff that was maybe difficult, you know, with talking about the lateral move comment about Jeff Collins, his wife having a little bit of difficulty. Some of the things that we kind of parsed out, he went ahead and just met straightforward and I think put them in a good light. And I thought he tackled those really well. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to get too high or too low on the press conference. I think people were okay with McElwain after his press conference and thought he did a good job. People love Muschamp's press conference, and that didn't work out. So I don't, I don't get too excited or get too upset. But I thought he did a well, did a well job. Look at me. I should have my own press conference. Did a very good job. Acquitted himself well. And I think – he's not going to fall into some of the same traps that McElwain did dealing with the press and the fan base. Yeah, I think he won the day with the press conference, but the press conference does not make a football coach. It does, however, reveal a character a character or the character of the coach. It was clear after McElwain's press conference that he was not articulate, straightforward, and or well-spoken. Things that really frustrate me personally about coaches – Uh, Mullen was the opposite. He was refreshingly straightforward. He answered the questions. He was respectful. He looked the part. Mullen felt like a man, and McIlwain felt like a teenage boy. And that was the difference, I thought. Mullen was a guy that gave you the, the, the aura of a guy who knew what he was doing. And he spent the next two days talking a lot about how much he's learned in his past nine years. I give Mullen a lot of credit for that. I think Mullen has learned a tremendous amount about how to be a head football coach, how to be a brand ambassador, 
that maybe like you mentioned, Alan, he didn't know when he was a coordinator. Uh, I think he's learned how to be in front of the camera. And that's a super important skill that maybe I didn't think he had. I knew he was always articulate, but I think he's learned how to be the brand ambassador. And that's not something I think Will Muschamp was great at. McElwain was awful at it. Zook was not good at it either. I think that that Mullen is good at that. And that that's solid. Uh, the question is still made about whether or not he can recruit and whether or not his offense is going to work well enough and all those sort of things. But I thought as far as press conference goes, he definitely won the day there and he conveyed the image he can get this done. Most importantly, it just bled through him that he really wanted to be at Florida. I believe that's true. I don't think that's an act. I think he wanted to leave Starkville. I think Florida was a top-level job for him personally, and he's working under an athletic director whom he likes. So I think all in all for him, it's a fantastic gig, and he's taking on the challenge. That's solid. Now the question becomes, Alan, how do I feel? How do you feel? How do we feel one week out from the hire? We just gave this a B plus. I went on a rant last week about how depressed I was. Uh, we talked a lot about the the cognitive dissonance that goes on. So you before you hire the guy, how do you feel? After you hire the guy, you tend to want to feel good about him because he's your guy. That's cognitive dissonance, right? That's a, that's a human emotive issue. That's a problem. So now that a week's gone by and all the dust has settled, uh, like summarize for me, Alan, how you're feeling now about Dan Mullen and what the future looks like with him as your coach. Well, I have to say I've started to talk myself into it a little bit. Uh, just as you said, it's a temptation. Now, some of it is more facts and more uh, information coming to light, a certain way of looking at statistics, hearing the press conference. So there's been some positive data thrown into the mix. But I, I feel like I have to look on the bright side a little bit. Just being doom and gloom is kind of <laughs> not really the way I operate. Now, I don't want to put on rose-colored glasses and be like, this is the greatest hire anybody's ever made and we're – you know, going to win 17 straight championships. But I do feel a little more positive about it. I expected I would. Now, James, a big question for you. You gave it a decent grade. How about emotionally? Are you any, are you feeling any more better about this hire? No, (laughs) I don't feel better emotionally. Analytically, I feel better for the reasons I laid out as to why I gave us a B plus. I don't feel emotionally better because his offense hasn't changed, and his offense is something I dislike. Uh, I don't like the strategy and the theory behind it. We're going to talk about it in just a couple of minutes. But no, I don't emotionally feel any better. I still feel like he's better than Ron Zook, Will Muschamp, and and McElwain, and probably not as good as Urban Meyer and Steve Spurrier, and certainly not anywhere near as fun as Steve Spurrier, and, and probably like a, an Urban Meyer light version. Doesn't recruit as well is not as good of a football mind as Urban Meyer is. I think you're seeing Urban even adopt his his spread principles some at Ohio State, more vertical passing, different style of attack. Uh, I just think Mullen's like a system guy. He's like a box kind of guy, and I don't love that. And so emotionally, I don't love. I just don't love Dan Mullen being my head football coach. I will say, though, Alan, I have liked a lot of what he has done strategically and tactically in the past week to address the needs of the program. But before we get to those things, let's talk about the biggest hire that came out this past week, which is that we hired Grantham to be our defensive coordinator. We talked a little bit about him last week. We punted this week to see if it would happen. It did happen. Out is Randy Shannon. Uh, In, by the way, are multiple of our assistants. 
that are excellent recruiters. That's number one. Mullen did a great job keeping those guys, right? Skipper's on board. Rump's on board. Uh, we kept Brad Davis. We kept uh, Jawan Snyder. Really solid recruiters. I think Mullen's showing what he needs. And then in comes Grantham. So Grantham Allen, most notably, was essentially, quote-unquote, fired from Georgia. Not really, but he left. He had two tremendous seasons, an average season, then a kind of a falling-out season. Went to Louisville, dominated there. Went to Mississippi State, dominated there. From all I can read about Grantham, the, the last year he had at Georgia, he had a super young defense. And that in reality, there wasn't much he could do with that. The frustration that a lot of Georgia fans will show with Grantham is what is sort of considered to be third and Grantham, or maybe this concept of emotional blitzing, that he emotionally gets tied to football games and that compromises his ability to call plays. He is, however, extremely aggressive as a coordinator, which is what Dan Mullen likes. That's what Dan Mullen likes. Randy Shannon is not that, and this is something that that Mullen really favors. The biggest and most important thing for you as a football fan to know is that Grantham comes from the Nick Saban school, and therefore he wants to run a 3-4 defense. Nick Saban switched over to a 3-4 several years ago. Uh, So does Georgia. So does several other schools. LSU, we chronicle on the podcast frequently. You've heard us talk a lot about the 3-4 on this very podcast. And Alan, the 3-4 defense can be a great defense if you have the right personnel. Along the defensive line, we already have essentially the right personnel. We have a couple of guys who could play nose tackle or the center of that defensive line and occupy a double team without a problem starting this year. However, as you've heard all along on this show, our linebackers are weak. We're weak. We're thin and we're not good at that position. Now we have to have four linebackers where a lot of times we were only playing two linebackers. So we've got a major situation in transitioning this defense, not only in football theory from a 4-3 to a 3-4, but in personnel right out of the gate in year one. And at this point in time, I'm not really sure how we're even going to pull this off. And Grantham is in the NFL. He's run multiple defenses. He could easily not run a 3-4 next year until we get the players in there. But that's a massive question mark coming in. One I'm sure Mullen's aware of, so you could argue Grantham is more of a second and third year hire than a win in year one hire. Uh, but you can expect that 3-4 defense, as Nick Saban prefers, is to be better at stopping crossing routes. That's primarily what it's excellent at stopping. Uh, crossing routes, short passes, east-west passes, all the stuff that the football offenses that I hate run. The 3-4 is built to stop very, very well. And there's a lot of reasons why coaches are running it now. But all you need to know about those two defensive styles, the 4-3 versus the 3-4, is one is not inherently better than the other. But typically, running the defense that the quarterback sees less often is best. And right now, you're sort of in the midst of this 3-4 revival in college football. It's happened in the NFL before as well. And then essentially what happens is several years go by and it flips back the other way because enough quarterbacks see it, enough offenses care up at beating it that then you sort of want to become the contrarian. So that's kind of the overview on what's going on. But Alan, how do you feel about a switch to the 3-4 given our our serious problem at linebacker? Well, it's interesting because I tend to be tend to favor a 4-3. And so just real simply, if you're not sure what 3-4 or 4-3 is, um, it would do, refers to the defensive lineman and the linebacker. So Four, three, four defensive linemen, three linebackers, three, four is the inverse of that. And I tend to 
prefer a four three. I think you can hold up at the point of attack often better. It's a little less gimmicky in my mind, but you're right. There's not really necessarily a better way to do it. Now, also a preference for people in terms of not just what the quarterback has seen, but what are the available athletes? And so you need slightly different players for a 3-4 and a 4-3. You mentioned a big nose tackle. You need bigger defensive ends because you only got three of the two of those guys on the line, three guys total. And those guys who are maybe too small to play defensive end in a 4-3 are playing outside linebacker in a 3-4. And the guys who are kind of in between defensive end, defensive tackle in a 4-3 are playing defensive end in a 3-4. So if everybody's looking for guys who fit the traditional power speed ends in a four three well guess what there's guys who are a little bit small put them at outside linebacker a little too big put them at defensive end now if everybody's running a, a three four and looking for those those kind of tweener guys you just say hey no one wants these regular defensive ends i'll pick them up and use them so there's a little bit in terms of like resource allocation and scarcity that plays into this and i think you've seen bill belichick in the nfl do this He's zigged and zagged, I think, depending on what's the available personnel. Because you're right, you can win doing either way. I think you mentioned our our nose tackles, two freshmen. TJ Slayton is a monster. I think he's a classic nose tackle if he continues to develop. Elijah Conliffe, Gary Clark can play nose tackle, the middle of that 3-4. Um, I think CC Jefferson could play defensive end in a 3-4 if he stays. Not a lot of other guys I'm a little bit concerned about. Some of our defensive ends are a little smaller. Uh, Antonius Clayton, Jabari Zuniga. And so, I don't know, could those guys play three, four outside linebacker? You might see them try. But you're right, overall, we are so thin at linebacker. So, so, so thin. Now, maybe we get some of those guys back from suspension, from injury. But, oh, man, that feels like a rough ride. Now, maybe it's still a rough ride even if you're in a 4-3. Maybe just play a lot of nickel, and <laughs> um, which is maybe what we're going to do anyway. I don't feel great about it. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's going to be an adjustment. Now let's talk about Grantham's track record. He's really been successful everywhere he's been, um, and I think made a major impact almost immediately. He went to Louisville. They jump up in the rankings. Goes to Mississippi. They jump up in the rankings. Now, when you balance that, does that encourage you more or does the third in Grantham worry you? Which side feels more weighty to you? I actually think I feel fine about the football theory with how he runs defenses. You can't be perfect as a coordinator. You definitely do not want to be emotional as a play caller like we've chronicled a lot on this very pod. I I feel more about his character you know yes it's a while ago but he got into it with james franklin once upon a time he you know made the choke signal and cursed out Chaz henry in a game and i don't know he just sort of seems like a little gremlin but all in all with regards to his track record it's only been success he generally finishes somewhere in the top 25 the georgia results are a little disconcerting they did go backwards in his four years there i think a lot of that was due to turnover but I, I could say that, let's say that was the case, his most recent stats the past three or four years have been phenomenal, just phenomenal with regards to his defensive track record. And he's doing it at schools that don't have the resources Florida has. So 
I don't dislike the hire. Uh, I don't love the hire, I think, because one, he runs a 3-4, which I don't think is good for our resources. Two, I think a lot of people are starting to run the 3-4 defense, which you just mentioned. I'm the Bill Belichick guy. Raise my hand. I love Bill Belichick. Why? He's a game theorist. And game theory would dictate that you should zig when others are zagging, especially when it comes to defense, because there's not a meta strategy on defense that's always going to win. So... He's a Nick Saban guy. I don't know that I love that either, per se. Nick Saban guys have a hard time beating Nick Saban. You're sort of going against the father of whatever defense you're running. You're learning everything from that guy. That guy knows how you want to do it. There's something to be said for doing things a little bit differently. But but I don't dislike the hire. I don't dislike the hire. And I think the 3-4 could be good down the road. Uh, and I think it does confuse quarterbacks. And I think it is built to stop these East-West running offenses. It is absolutely built to stop that. It's much more complicated to block against if you're an offensive lineman. And I know that's a major reason why Nick Saban switched to it. So there are benefits to it. Lastly, Alan, the benefit probably is that our offense plays against it all the time. So when you face Georgia and Alabama and others, our offense is very used to going against what they run. Uh, and the defense will be good at it because they run it all the time. So there are some upsides. And Grantham himself, a lot of experience, great track record. Certainly, he's a very competent and solid defensive coordinator. He's a good hire uh, as far as that goes. So I think I'm positive on it with a little bit of concern based upon the personality traits and the emotional way he coaches. All right. Yeah, if you were uh, if you were criticizing Randy Shannon and didn't want us to blitz, get ready. Yeah, <laughs> we will blitz. And, and even when it makes no sense, like we talked about, because there's times when you just shouldn't blitz because it undresses you. And, and Grantham will do that and be ready for that in times that you might lose your mind uh, on that. So, you know. We'll chronicle that, obviously, in the podcast, and we'll tell you when it's good and bad next year. All right, the offense. So we're not going to spend forever talking about this, just to kind of went over the defense quickly. We'll have plenty of time to get into this as we move into this season, next season, and onward. Uh, but for now, I want to clarify a conversation I've gotten into a billion times in the past week with people saying, look, I don't understand what you don't like about his offense. Doesn't everyone else run this offense? Doesn't Clemson run this offense? And, and the answer is no, it doesn't. When you talk about a spread option, there are a couple of ways to run that. But when I'm talking about spread option, I'm basically talking about Urban Meyer 2007-2008's version of the spread option. Urban Meyer himself has modified this a little bit. A little bit. And you saw that on display in the Wisconsin game. A lot of vertical passes were thrown in that game. They couldn't hit him because JT Barrett's not a great quarterback, which is one of the reasons why I don't like the spread option is a spread option as Dan Mullen runs it first and foremost dictates that you have a quarterback that can run. That is actually more important than a quarterback that can throw. That should tell you a lot about why I don't like it right there. The theory in and of itself is as follows. We have chronicled a lot about the numbers in the box. How many guys on defense are within four or five yards of the line of scrimmage? The spread option offense is designed to spread that defense out and to clarify the number of guys in the box for the offense. So essentially, if it's even on even football, if it's seven on seven in the box, you run the ball with the quarterback being your extra man. It should give you an advantage. If they move an additional guy in the box, if a safety comes down from his position to help out, now it's eight in the box versus your seven on offense, you will throw the ball since you have an extra advantage there. The goal is to have playmakers and fast guys like Percy Harvin to be able to take advantage of one-on-one -on -one matchups in the passing game. 
or in the running game, as you saw us use Percy. The reason I don't like the philosophy is what's about to happen right now. The spread option offense's stated goal is to gain four yards of play. What this means is if the defense comes down with an eighth man in the box and we are now in a passing play, our goal is not to run a route combination that scores a touchdown in Dan Mullen's spread option offense. The goal is to run a passing play that gains you four yards and or gets your athlete the ball in space. I hate this philosophy. I very much prefer the philosophy of if we have a numbers advantage, we are going to try to score a touchdown on you. You consider this to be the maximum punishment for the defense running the wrong defense, right? Why gain five yards when you can gain 25 yards, especially if you've got a large window in college football with which to do it. Take what the defense gives you, inflict maximum pain. That's my philosophy. Those are the ones I like the best. Mullins is entirely opposite. It governs itself for safe, conservative throws down the field. This tends to become difficult when you play against teams that know how to stop this. And Dan Mullen in front of him with this offense every year now will have to be the combination of Kirby Smart, who looks like a rocket ship flying off into space talent-wise. He'll have to beat either Nick Saban, Gus Malzahn, or Jimbo Fisher now. He's going to have to beat two, and in most years, three of those guys to win an SEC title, running an offense that is not as transcendent as even Urban's is with regards to changes, that's heavily dependent upon the quarterback run, that is very well known by both of those coordinators. Most importantly, like I've mentioned, it is a governed offense and that the goal is to try to gain four yards of play regardless whether it's a pass and a run. Home runs come out of that offense because you are more athletic. That's the goal. If your guy's faster than that guy, he jukes him and he takes off, which we saw with Percy Harvin. I do not think that's the right philosophy for an offensive coordinator. And I don't think it's entertaining when you've got a situation to score a big play. Instead, you go for the shorter play. So that's sort of the brief overview of why when I say I don't like the spread option, I'm talking about I don't like this Urban and Dan Mullen spread option. Uh, There are many other ways to run it. For example, Scott Frost runs the spread, but it's not primarily quarterback run-based east-west version. Quarterback runs a lot, running back runs a lot. They're passing is how can we score touchdowns, not how do we gain three or four yards. Clemson runs it. Their passing is how do we score touchdowns, not three or four yards. So that would be more of the Bill Belichick spread passing system combined with spread option principles like the zone read. That's what I would favor us leaning towards. Dan Mullen maybe is the most pure spread option running team left in the country. He pretty much runs it just like Urban did in 07-08. And there you have it. I strongly dislike that offense. And hopefully this will help cover it in the future when you hear me talking about what we're seeing week in and week out, why I like and don't like it, and why it's not true that so many other schools run this offense because in reality, they really don't. All right, now with that monologue out of the way, Alan, I've just wasted five minutes of time going in-depth on the spread option. What are your thoughts on this offense? Because I know I'm way on the extreme for how much I don't like this. I readily acknowledge that. Most people are not anywhere near as far as I am on the spectrum of dislike for this style. Yeah, I I don't love it. I think the type of player that you need at quarterback sometimes limits you, right? Because you have to have a threat of the quarterback running. It doesn't have to be the most dynamic runner ever. But if you're not afraid of them, it really limits what you can do. Think about Auburn when they've had a guy who hasn't been able to run. They struggle when they go up against 
an elite defense. And I think generally with Mullen and the Mississippi State um, Bulldogs, what you've seen them is they've run to set up the pass, which isn't a bad philosophy, but they tend to be so run heavy that sometimes it just seems like they're running the same play over and over again. And what they're doing is actually attacking the same um, maybe weakness with different combinations. They, Dan Mullen is, is smart. He's creative in some sense, but he tends to stick to his guns, I think, more than I would like him to. And you're right. It is a little limiting. Often when you have a guy who's a good to elite runner, he's limited as a passer, obviously. There's very few guys who are going to be exceptional at both. I'm thinking like a Michael Vick, Deshaun Watson, you know, superstar kind of guys. Those guys are very rare. Tim Tebow filled that role very nicely. Now, if you want to see the type of success that you could have at Mississippi State with a guy maybe that he couldn't get at Mississippi State, Mississippi State normally, but that he could get at Florida, it would be Dak Prescott. Later on in Dak's career, they started to get a little more creative with their passing concepts, with some of their route trees, um, some of the things that Dak was able to do at the line of scrimmage. So there is a little bit more of a ceiling than what he typically does, probably, in my opinion, because he couldn't get an elite quarterback. He had to unearth one, a la Nick Fitzgerald, who is very successful at. So if there's a guy who can come in and do more things, I think Dan has shown that he'll at least adjust a little bit. And I think any offense that spreads you out and puts a numbers game on you is going to be effective if you have good players. Now, it may not be as pretty as we might like it to be. I think it will be effective. I think we'll score more points next year. But I'm with you, James. I This is not my favorite offense because it tends to be so run-heavy slash QB run-heavy. And I don't know. The guys that usually are going to run that are not the most dynamic passers, and I love throwing the football around. I was raised on Spurrier just like many in Gator Nation. So that would be the drawback there for me. So I want to talk about this stat that floated around last week that is an excellent one. You know we love data on this show, and it's been weird actually to spend so many weeks not getting into in-depth X's and O's and or data. So here's a little bit for you. Mullen's win rate was 60%, which we talked about at Mississippi State. The question becomes, at a school like Mississippi State, moving from there to Florida, what could we expect his win rate to be? What's the jump that you expect? And someone has gone out there and crunched the numbers looking at guys like Nick Saban and Les Miles and others coming from schools like Michigan State, going to LSU, so on and so forth. Uh, James Franklin from Vanderbilt to Penn State. What do you get? Well, it's essentially expected that you can get as high as a 15% or even on average, really, now we're cherry picking some of these guys, but a 15% bump. So if you win 60% at Mississippi State, maybe you're going to win 75% at Florida. Now, that would be extremely high in my opinion. I think that if I were running those numbers myself, I would have regressed them a little bit more. Maybe you get 10%, let's say you get a 70 But regardless, there is a correlation and even a causation to expect that Mullen's win percentage, Allen, should go up. Now, this is to be expected. That should not be something that surprises you. Coaches like Will Muschamp, McIlwain, Zook, We've talked about them at Florida. They win about 60% of their games at Florida. 
Steve Spurrier, Urban Meyer, they win in the mid-70s, uh, low 70s, right? Nick Saban's at 78%. Dan Mullen, if you're wanting to believe the best-case scenario about him running this spread option, should get anywhere from a 10 to 15% percentage bump, which would immediately put him in the top three coaches in the SEC. Alan, what would you expect, or what should we as Gator fans expect Mullen's win rate to be realistically at the University of Florida? Well, if he's not going to be at around 70%, I don't think he's going to make it. Now there's a little wiggle room with that, but I'm hopeful he can get there. This chart was really intriguing to me um, because it's basically taking guys who move from one Power 5 school to a, a... kind of a higher tier power five. So you mentioned like Nick Saban, Michigan State to LSU, Les Miles, Oklahoma State to LSU, Mac Brown, North Carolina to Texas, Harbaugh, Stanford to Michigan, Franklin, Vanderbilt to Penn State. So it's interesting. So these guys get a bump in resource and maybe, I don't know, recruiting, other things, and they win at a higher rate. And so that might just seem obvious, but there's not a lot of guys who move from mid-tier power five school to bigger tier power five school that it happens more like a scott frost like a ucf to nebraska or jim McElwain, colorado state to florida because usually those guys don't make it out alive if they're at a bottom tier school uh, or they stay there a while um so this is intriguing to me very intriguing i it makes me a little more hopeful that if you have a guy who's exceptional at his in his context that if you give him more advantages, he can increase his success rate. Now, I think he'll be around 70%, but can he win enough of those high-end games to get himself into championships? And I think that's my concern. But I think he'll be right around 70%. What about you? Yeah, he needs to be at 70%, like you said. I think that's the hurdle to be a coach that stays at Florida and gets a contract renewed. The question is, does he get above that, like we mentioned, to get into the next level? I don't think so, and I don't think so primarily because we don't know enough yet about his recruiting. He wasn't known for that, hasn't been known for that, and we don't know enough yet about his football mind against elite competition when he himself has elite talent. If he can get the elite talent, the question is, then can he coach the elite talent against the elite coaches? And those are questions we don't know. I tend to think he's not going to be at that level. Those guys win between 74 and 77% of the time. I think it's realistic to expect Dan to be between 70 and 74. And then that that begs the question at that point in time, is Dan Mullen who you want to coach the University of Florida uh, if he can't win SEC championships? In fact, this got so real on a Facebook thread I posted. I put out a $1,000 bet saying you can take Dan Mullen while he's the coach of the University of Florida to win an SEC championship. I'll take the other side. Let's bet 1000 bucks on it. Really more of a mental exercise to say, for those of you that believe out there that Dan Mullen is the solution and he's going to win, would you be willing to put a significant amount of money on it and that he's going to win an SEC championship? Because I think all of us on this pod, listening to this pod, could agree at Florida, you need to be competing for those. Kirby Smart just won one in year two, which is exceptional, much faster than anybody would have predicted. Uh, Can Dan Mullen win one at all? is the bet. And I'm currently of the opinion he cannot. I'm not rooting against him. I'm not hating on him. I just think given what I've seen, how the offense runs, what we know about him, it's unlikely that he's going to win an SEC title, so much so that I would feel comfortable making a monetary bet on that proposition. And I hope, 
I hope we're wrong. I hope we come out of the gates and we smoke everybody. But Alan, that's where we are. So with that, we have some massive needs in recruiting. And one thing that Dan's done tactically really well, I think, thus far, Alan, is go out and swing for the absolute fences when it comes to the quarterback position. And we are also significantly increasing our recruitment of linebackers here. We've got a couple months left to go. We've got a couple of weeks till early signing day. But we are basically now talking to all of the five-star dual-threat quarterbacks that exist, that are committed, that are even early enrollees trying to say, hey, look, here we are. And I think, Alan, we have something tremendous to offer these guys, which essentially is a starting job at the University of Florida running this offense. Because our our quarterbacks currently on the roster are not a fit. I think almost all of them should really transfer. I think Matt Corral, who's our stud quarterback coming out of California, he should not come. If I'm his dad, if you're listening, Matt Corral, you shouldn't come to Florida. I'm not hating on Florida. It's not the offense for you. You're not the right fit. You're a pro-style quarterback. You're not 6'4", 6'5", 230 pounds. You're not primarily a runner. You really shouldn't come here. It's going to be a frustrating experience for you. However, Justin Fields, if you're listening, which you're not, right? We're being funny. Justin Fields, a Georgia commit who is now stuck behind Fromm, who just won an SEC title in year two and is going to the playoff, who's also got Jacob Eason, who's a five-star. They have two five-stars on the roster. Justin Fields is the third five-star on the roster. He's a dual-threat quarterback. He's everything Dan Mullen would want and dream of. That's a guy that ought to be coming to Florida to run this offense. That's a guy we need. Lo and behold, we are talking to him. We are talking to his dad. We are talking to others. I think Mullen is taking all the right steps to address the roster. He knows what he needs to build his team. The big question, Alan, to me now is whether or not we get one of those guys, because let me be very clear about this. If we don't land a true, highly ranked, dual threat quarterback this year, and Matt Corral stays and comes in, we are in serious, serious trouble next year on offense, because we will have an incredibly wrong set of pieces to run this offense on both the offensive line and at the quarterback spot. And that will be a problem. That will be a problem. So Mullen's ability to sell a kid to come take the keys to his kingdom in this next couple of weeks slash couple of months, I think is very indicative of whether or not Mullen has become a great recruiter or at least a different recruiter than I think he's capable of. And we're going to figure this out very, very shortly, I think. Yeah, this is interesting because the first thing you heard was he's going to talk to Justin Fields, a guy who Florida was interested in, was recruiting. He committed to Georgia. Like you said, all world. I think he's the number one overall recruit. Seemingly a great fit for this system where he wasn't a great fit for McElwain's system. Matt Corral was. And I got a little nervous because I was like, of course we should probably talk to Fields. But if we lose Corral, what are we going to do? James, were you comfortable? I guess you were because you don't think Corral should even come here, but, or even if he does come, you know, that it might not work out so well. Uh, So you were fine with him rolling the dice and talking to Fields, even if that meant that Corral would, you know, how recruiting goes, maybe start to look elsewhere. I think he's sending a clear message, right? I mean, that's my thought. I don't think that's being like inflammatory. I think that (laughs) we've chronicled this. We said, heck, we said last week, if you want to play quarterback for Dan Mullen, you've got to be 6'4", 6'5", 235 pounds because what matters most is you can run, which is, again, followed by the statement you guys are getting sick of me saying, which is why James dislikes the offense. Matt Corral's not that guy. I, I, Matt Corral should not stay. And I think Mullen should basically call Matt Corral and be like, Matt, here's the deal. Keep this junk together. I know you love Florida. I'm going to go after Fields and other guys. You know, quietly 
talk to the teams you love elsewhere. I mean, of course, you can't do this, right? It's a fake scenario. But if he cared about what's best for Corral, that conversation would happen. I'm sure if you could pin Mullen down right now in a football conversation, Dan Mullen would tell you Matt Corral's not the guy to run his offense. And he knows that. Could he run an offense with Matt Corral? Sure, he could. But Alan, you alluded to Auburn. And there was a guy there that was a top five quarterback recruit that went to Auburn very mysteriously. He was a thrower, not a runner. And their offense was a dumpster fire with him there. Absolutely horrible. And this guy could sling the football. It's not a good fit. And so I think he has to risk talking to these guys because he knows his offense doesn't work unless he has that. It doesn't matter how sick Macaral's arm is. He's not a runner. He's an athlete. He can run, but he's not a runner with a huge body. And uh, I think that's just the way it has to be. Uh, unfortunately. Now, I don't know what Matt Corral's going to do. Matt Corral seems to love the University of Florida, and I think he's a high school kid. He thinks, hey, I can do this. I can run that offense. I think like we heard Kiwan Ratliff say, Alan, you need to go to a school that runs a style that best benefits your skill set. That's not personal. That is not something that means Florida is now a jerk to Matt Corral. That is real, and that's great advice. And therefore, if I'm Kiwan and I'm advising Matt Corral, Florida's style does not fit your skill set. You must give yourself the best chance of continuing your craft by going to a school that does. That's where I'm at on that argument. Yeah, I, I hear you on that. I, I do not know enough about Matt Corral as an athlete. I've not studied his film to say whether he could run a version of this spread. And the version that I'm thinking of is Alex Smith at Utah, where he's a credible threat to run, but more of a thrower. I, I do think there's a path forward with that. I don't think it's A+. plus. But if you look at Matt Corral and the rest of the QBs on this roster, don't you have to take him anyway if he's willing to come and try to do your best? Because I think he's probably still a better fit than Frank's Trask, Jake Allen. So if you've got a four high four to five-star guy coming in, are willing to come to University of Florida, I think you, if he's an elite-level quarterback like that on any level, I think you have to bend what you do towards him. And if he can all at all run your preferred system. Now, obviously, Dan Mullen's not going to back up and start running the air raid. But I don't know. I, I, I would be willing to take him. And again, this is me in a vacuum a little bit, not having watched a lot of Corral, maybe he's not a credible enough runner to make this work. But if he is, in my mind he is, as people talk about him being athletic enough, then I think it could still work. It wouldn't be the Nick Fitzgerald offense. It might be the Alex Smith at Utah offense. And I think that could be successful, uh, even in the SEC. So that'll be a big thing to watch is our, our quarterback recruitment. You know, Just because we don't get somebody now doesn't mean we won't get somebody in February. This is a really short window for Dan Mullen to work. So don't hop up and down on the panic button if we don't land a QB. And again, for linebackers, that's probably our next biggest thing. There's there's several spots on the roster that need to be uh, restocked, but linebackers are going to be key. So that's something to keep an eye on. This is a very intriguing, interesting, scary time for UF in terms of recruiting because we've got this weird new early recruitment window. Does that help us? Does that hurt us? Who knows? If you're someone who likes recruiting, this is fascinating for you. If someone doesn't like recruiting, don't worry about it. Wake up in February, and you'll figure out who's on the team. 
James, any other recruiting thoughts before we keep moving forward? This is super critical. That's what I'm going to keep saying. We talked about this with McIlwain in year one and year two, and this got us good. We tried to say, hey, this is not good. Hey, there is no excuse to be recruiting where we're recruiting. This is incredibly critical this year right now. It does not make or break Dan Mullen's future at Florida, but this is significant. Don't sleep on how significant this is. If you hear us talking on our recruiting episodes in late January, early February, and we do not have good news to report, consider that to be a red flag. Not the end of the world, but a true red flag. We have a lot to sell at the University of Florida High School recruits in the way of playing time and in the way of winning. And you have got tremendous opportunities if you're an elite athlete to start right now at several key spots as a true freshman. And that should mean something. If Mullen can't sell those kids on that, given that a lot of these kids are kids he knows. This is not a coach from a different region. He knows these kids. He's recruited them already. We've got a problem, I think, in the recruiting department. So we're going to find out. Stay tuned. We're going to find out. And again, uh, if we don't land the kind of guys we want in this period, there's another signing period in February. So, you know, take a beat on that. But a coach's first year, he needs to move the needle. And it's really that second year that he's going to blow up. But you can't fall behind in that first year. It is critical, as James said. Okay, let's talk about the national games. A lot of fun games. A lot of weird blowouts as well. Let's start with a kind of kooky one from Friday night. Stanford 28, USC 31. Yeah, we thought Stanford would win. Both of us picked him to win. And the game, I thought, was was great. I thought you know, Friday night's a weird night to play these games. I didn't catch a lot of it. But all in all, USC played better than I thought they would. They had one of their best showings of the season. I think they were hopeful that maybe by some miracle, the playoff committee would consider them uh, not to be had. But at any rate... I take away from this that USC underachieved this year, but ultimately won something that sticks with them. They won a conference championship that matters. And I thought Stanford had a wonderful season. So a nice ending out there in in the Pac-12. Yeah, I think if Bryce Love had been healthy, I think Stanford wins this game. If you watch that game, you saw him really gut it out. He was running off. You know, he would limp off the field, be off for two plays, and then come back in. And he's really the heart and soul of their offense. They're basically Bryce Love in an army of tight ends. And they have a decent backup running back who, you know, is fine, but it's not a guy who almost ran for 2,000 yards. I think he probably came up 20 yards short of 2,000 yards, which is amazing. So a fun game to kick off the weekend. An even better game, Memphis 55, UCF 62, double overtime. I watched most of this game when I was expecting to watch TCU, Oklahoma, it was awesome. This game was incredible. I mean, back-to-back weeks, you had the UCF game being the most entertaining game in college football. What a game right down until the end uh, on both sides. No one could really play defense. UCF sort of had this game won. Memphis roars back. Lots of fun adjustments being made. One of the reasons I really like Scott Frost is that he makes a lot of adjustments during the game. That offense does not just run a base set of plays. They will drastically change how they attack you. Both teams were significantly changing their points of attack. I thought UCF was very curious on a lot of defensive plays in this game. We could do a whole podcast on some of the stuff they did defensively that I thought was really dumb. Uh, But regardless, they come away with a win. Scott Frost concludes a perfect season at UCF. I believe he's going to coach their bowl game uh, against Auburn, which I know, Alan, you've got to be excited about that matchup. 
Yeah, that would be really cool. Hopefully Auburn's motivated to play that game. Um, we'll see. You have could light him, UCF could light him up if Auburn is not. Let's do the next one. TCU 17, Oklahoma 41. Big time win for Oklahoma. Cements their place in the playoff. They looked really good during this game. Yeah, Lincoln Riley, after one slip-up early on, has sealed the deal. And that was a huge win for them. They have a ton of momentum. I love them in the preseason. I love Baker Mayfield's play as a quarterback. I think that I want them to win. And I say I think because I don't really want Oklahoma to win, but I don't really want any of these teams to win. I definitely don't want Bama. I definitely don't want Georgia. Clemson's already kind of won. So, like, maybe I root for Oklahoma because I root for the quarterback. I don't know. I'm conflicted. But that's a really fun football team. We've said it all year long. That is a really fun football team. Uh, and that was a demolition of TCU in a game that mattered. So they come into the playoff with just a tremendous amount of momentum. The lingering questions for them are, can they stop a power running game? And we are going to find out in a month. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating. because It's going to be their defense that limits them. Obviously, that's been the story for them all season. Love Baker. You know, he's been my pick for the Heisman all year. I, they could legitimately win this playoff. Um, it, even with some of these power teams in it, this is wide open, wide open. And we'll talk about the playoff as we move forward this week and maybe definitely into as we get closer. But yeah, this was a big win for them. I thought the Big 12 might Big 12 all over themselves and miss the playoff because they instituted a championship game after missing the playoff for not having a championship game. So good for Oklahoma and Oklahoma fans. UGA 28, Auburn 7. Auburn goes right down the field and scores in their very first drive. And I was like, oh, man, here we go. And then UGA just kind of puts a cap on them a little bit. And, yeah, James, do you think that Auburn wins this game if on Johnson is healthy? Maybe. It's hard to know. But they can't win without him, which we talked about. That was the main discussion point coming into this game. And that's yet another problem I have with the spread option. Gus Malzahn runs. I didn't mention Gus Malzahn, by the way. He runs the spread option. It's it's much more creative uh, compared to like Urban and Dan Mullen's system, which is at times why it's maybe frustratingly more poor. But you saw what happened when Auburn couldn't run the ball dominantly. They, they really had no passing game. Uh, and that's because Georgia's built to stop East-West passing games to do exactly what Auburn does. And hence my fear of running that kind of garbage against Kirby Smart every single year and then Nick Saban. But I digress. Maybe they win that game, Alan. Maybe. I don't know, though. I, I think Georgia and Kirby Smart scares the heck out of me. I have friends who are thinking this is no big deal and that Kirby Smart has two NFL running backs and blah, 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 blah. Let me just give you a, a public service announcement right here. Kirby Smart looks every bit right now like Nick Saban 2.0 with a nicer and more friendly personality. If you are not deathly afraid of what is going on in Athens, Georgia as a Gator fan, you are missing something. This is way ahead of schedule. I hear this thought that Georgia has all this elite talent. Uh, newsflash, they don't. Kirby inherited a team that was decimated by guys who transferred. It was well chronicled last year. So what he just did to win this SEC championship, the way that team is playing, is nothing short of incredible, in my opinion. Oh, by the way, with a true freshman quarterback. 
So Gator fans are always talking about a true freshman quarterback. They can't play, whatever. He can't do anything. Oh, they just did it. Oh, but they have 24 running backs. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Kirby Smart right now is way off the bonfire, Alan. He's he's so far off. He took a rocket ship out of that thing, and it scares me half to death. Very, yeah, we were very thinking, impressed with him. <laughs> we were thinking he was going to be Muschamp 2.0, and he might be saving 2.0. They looked really good in this game, and Auburn obliterated them last time. I thought Auburn would roll them again, but as it got close to the game, I was like, you know, I just don't know. Something feels off this time about Auburn with their injuries. Now a team that got rolled, Miami, not ready for prime time yet, Miami. You got freaking pants by Clemson. Miami 3, Clemson 38. That's what we thought, right? We said Miami was a pretender. They were a pretender. Yeah. This is a great I season. I know if it was that much of a pretender. Yeah, this is a great season for Mark Rick, though, in Miami. No one should be sad about this. This is also way ahead of schedule. But the bigger narrative here, Alan, is Dabo Sweeney has quietly, and I don't know what other word to use this, but quietly gone about an incredibly excellent year in a title defense. And if he doesn't have a weird Friday night game against Syracuse where his quarterback goes down the second quarter, he's undefeated again. The guy's won, you know, 30 games, 30 and one or whatever he is. I don't know what the stat is, 20 something and one in the past 24 months. And this team looks good. I mean, this team looks really, really good. And, and Dabo Sweeney is doing this without top five classes, but he's got a knack for getting the best guys at the playmaker spots. But this team is nasty, Alan. This is a nasty team. People are sleeping on them. They've been sleeping on them all year long. Uh, and I think they're peaking at the right time. Agreed. Uh, they looked really good. I mean, Miami didn't look like they should be on the same field as Clemson. And yeah, maybe that loss to Syracuse was the best thing for Clemson. It quieted down some of the buzz around them, maybe took a little bit of the pressure off about winning so many games straight because that would have started to crescendo. But they are the number one team heading to the playoff, and they look like it. Now, let's see when you've got Alabama a chance to heal up, get some of those linebackers back, give Nick Saban a chance to game plan. Because Kelly Bryant is good, but he's not Deshaun Watson. So I'm assuming we're going to see part three. Maybe we won't. Maybe Oklahoma will spoil all that. But um, I guess we will. Alabama's going to play Clemson first round. There you go. Rematch. Speaking of people who didn't make it in the playoff, Ohio State 27, Wisconsin 21, not quite impressive enough from the Buckeyes. Do you think, Alan, and here's my question here in the selection period, because, okay, Wisconsin played well. My quick narrative on the game is Wisconsin played well. We said they were a good team. We thought they'd be competitive. We thought JT Barrett would struggle as a passer, which he did. I mean, pretty much everything we thought in this game was true. If JT Barrett could throw better, Ohio State wins this game running away, 50-something to 20. No doubt about it. But he can't, and that's their problem. That's one of the reasons why I think they really don't deserve to be in the playoff. But I like eight teams, not four. With the teams to settle it, fine, whatever. Do you think, Alan, that if Ohio State had won this game 55-21, they would have gotten in over Bama? Or do you think that it didn't matter what happened in that championship game? There was no way Ohio State was getting in over Alabama. That's a really great question. 
I think they might have gotten in. I mean, the committee was watching them play and then voting. They did not look that great against Wisconsin. And that's partly because people just have not really valued Wisconsin all year. And that was probably a mistake. Wisconsin's a very good, solid team. But this is not the 62-0-3 stomping that they put on them a couple years ago. And maybe just that Iowa result where they lose by 31 points was just too much. Um, And that was maybe just their downfall. It didn't matter what they did. This is a really interesting debate. I know you were very heavily on the side of Alabama, but I thought it was closer than most people were at least assuming from the outside. That Ohio State, I think, was really close to getting in. So maybe that would have happened. Um, Now, James... This sets a weird precedent. Let's say Ohio State schedules Akron instead of Oklahoma. And they have one loss, and they win the big. Let's see even if that loss is to Iowa by a lot. But they win the Big Ten. They're a one-loss team. Do they make it in? If they lost to Iowa the way they lost to Iowa... No, I still don't think they do. Okay, And I think it's because the language of the playoff is smart. It says the best four teams. It doesn't say the teams with a resume they like. It doesn't say teams that have to be conference champions. It says the best four teams. Now, if that loss to Iowa was closer and they had scheduled Akron, yes, they're in. I don't I don't know. I think it's maybe likely, Alan, that they they snuck in, but I, I mean I don't know. Like it's the same comparison here, right? That Iowa loss is bad. That Iowa loss led the Vegas bookmakers to make Alabama the absolute outright favorite to win the national championship and they're the four seed. That tells you a lot about the best team. So I think the committee, as far as the odds makers are concerned, got that right. And the handicappers are the most accurate at, pred- at predicting these kind of things. No one knows, but they're the most accurate, right? So clearly, that's right. I don't know that. I don't know that uh, Ohio State not playing and losing to Oklahoma changes any of that. I think the odds makers still look at the Iowa game, they look at the body of work from Ohio State, and say Alabama's still better. And if that's the case, Alabama was still ranked ahead of Ohio State all year long, and they would have been. I have a hard time seeing a way where that happened, but I think what you're really isolating here, Alan, is does the committee want to have two SEC teams in there over a one-loss Big Ten champion when the Big Ten was a good football conference this year? And maybe the stigma of that, Alan, would have prevented them from putting Bama in, but if they were following their mandate of the four best teams getting in there, Bama still should have been in there, even if even if Ohio State traded that game, in my opinion. Not sure if they would have done it. That's a coin flip to me. If I'm in the room, I'd still make the argument saying the mandate's the best four teams, guys. It's not a conference champion. It's the best four teams. And who do we think's the best and why? Yeah, and the precedent thing is weird because we only have a couple years of data. And, and again, you don't want to set precedent of doing things that go against your like given purpose and responsibility. But it's not your responsibility to con- control the game. You know, you're not necessarily take, 
caretaker of the game. But I do like that in general they've rewarded high level competition. It's it sucks for Bama that Florida State fell off the face of the earth this year. That was supposed to be game of the year. But they got in anyway. So maybe a little bit of its scheduling intent there as a plus for Bama. Anyway, Bama's in. Ohio State is not. And I think had Ohio State made it in, there have been just as much outcry about the committee favoring Ohio State in every possible scenario. So as much as I didn't really want to see Bama in the playoff, I didn't want to see Ohio State in there either. So I guess we're stuck with the Crimson Tide juggernaut. Yeah, and I happen to think that last year affected the committee. I don't care what they tell me. I know behavioral psychology-wise that recency bias is a real thing. And Ohio State getting manhandled and smashed last year was not a good look for the playoff. And I think when they looked at it, you can say to yourself, is Alabama going to get smashed by Clemson? No, absolutely not. They may lose that game, but they are not going to get murdered. Could Ohio State get murdered by Clemson? Absolutely they could. That game could be very sideways. And I know they're saying that doesn't matter. I'm telling you that mattered. That matters to them. The playoffs have not generated high TV ratings. They've moved them to New Year's Day now, which I think will skyrocket their TV ratings in the first place. I don't care what anyone tells me. That committee sits there, and there's no doubt that factored in, that this Ohio State team that's gotten obliterated once before this year, had a horrible showing last year, same kind of quarterback in JT Barrett, is a major risk, and they do not want to risk that in the playoff. It makes the process, I think, a bit fraudulent. I don't think you have that risk with Alabama, and therefore it's a coin flip. You choose Bama. You choose Bama in that situation. All right, let's put a bow, Allen, on the Florida football season. This may feel a little bit odd. Here we are kind of removed from all the stuff Florida football-wise, but in reality, we're going to just quickly go through a memory from the season, a most painful moment from the season, and then the best players moving forward, which is maybe the most relevant part of the segment, is who do we think is going to exceed in the Dan Mullen-style offense And uh, who do we think are going to be key contributors next year? It's the way too early prediction phase of this. So first up, Alan, your best memory from this 2017 football season. The way I'm thinking about this is really when I look back at this season, five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years, what am I going to remember most fondly? And I think that the thing that's going to stick with me is the Hail Mary to Tyree Cleveland, the bomb of a throw to beat the junk Tennessee team (laughs) at the time we didn't know that they were as bad as they were. I mean, that was just the moment that brought me out of my chair and had me yelling. And even though it wasn't a great win in terms of beating an awesome team or something, I I still love those moments. That's going to be the highlight for me. What about you? I I try to find a best memory and I don't know that I have one. (laughs) It just started with the, the downward roll of the credit card fraud. And then I would like to say the Tennessee Hail Mary was one, but really I had like no emotion when we completed that. I was already like just dead inside. So I'm going to say the best memory. Well, I, I know what yours is. I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you what yours is. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Tell me. Jump the gun. Your, yours is the news of McElwain firing getting leaked. That's correct. Yes, you, you, you stole my thunder. So I was going to say that in the midst of a dumpster <laughs> fire season, the best memory of the season... The one that I will take away without a doubt is that week 
of of death threat to he's actually going to be fired to the Friday night Saturday morning like the Christmas kid in me like oh my gosh <laughs> we're out from underneath his regime that is the memory I will take from this season and if Dan Mullen becomes amazing then that memory will only get better as the years go on all right most painful moment I'll go first on this one the most painful moment was having to watch the team play every single week and I think that you guys as listeners knew this I am Italian I can be passionate this season graded what? on me. Yeah, right? Like, few others have graded on me. Like, it really killed me to have to watch these games and give you guys the X's and O's because it was an absolute clown show each and every week on the field. And it was painful every time I had to rewatch the film. So, for me, I had a lot of painful moments. All of them involved watching the team on the field. <laughs> it was just really painful. There were some high painful moments uh, which I could select I guess just one but I'm gonna go with the continuing having to watch this team play which I think might be echoed by more than just me uh, out there in Gator Nation yeah a lot to choose from on this one maybe I'll say the suspensions at the beginning of the year that really torpedoed our season and maybe if those guys don't get suspended maybe McElwain's still the head coach so maybe that's not a good thing but I hate to see those guys, you know, do something stupid like that and injure themselves and injure the program and their community. So that's probably the worst, although there's a lot. Losing to LSU, close. I mean, anytime you lose to FSU, it sucks. Um, but this season's a wash. They're, it's hard to take too much good or bad away from that. Okay, we're going to play a little game here, as we like to do. And want to do a little draft. We want to look ahead just a little bit and say, who do you think the best players are moving forward? So here's the guys who we're not including on the list. The seniors, Duke Dawson, Goolsby, probably Marcel Harris, uh, Brandon Powell, Jordan Sherritt, Mark Thompson, Johnny Townsend, the beloved punter, Nick Washington, and Malik Zaire. Also crossing off the list, guys, who we think will probably be in the NFL or not return to the team. So that'd be Taven Bryan, CC Jefferson, Eddie Pinheiro, Jordan Scarlett, Callaway, and then Martez Ivy. So those guys are not eligible to be picked in this game. James, I'm going to digitally flip a coin, call it in the air. Heads. It is heads. You have the first pick. <laughs> and then we'll snake it from there. So I, I hope that was it. like a Russian a Russian coin or something that was weighted towards me and it's got uh that was a, Ivan that was Drago. A Google coin. Oh, I really wanted you to flip like a Russian coin with like Ivan Drago's face on there. Um all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go number one pick. I don't think this is a surprise to anybody, Malik Davis. Uh, I think he's gonna have a monster year. Um as far as a monster year can go in year one of a system with new offensive linemen, but Malik Davis out the gate. Okay, I think he's the by far just the consensus number one on the board. He would have been my number one pick as well. I'm going to take two picks here. I'm going to go number two, Kadarius Tony. I could see him being incredible in this offense, especially if we can be creative about handing him the ball. He's going to be fully being wide receiver slash running back kind of guy. Um. And I'm excited to see what he can do with a full offseason not being a quarterback. So he'd be number, my number two. 
Number three, Tyree Cleveland. I think he could be a beast beating people downfield. I think he's going to get one-on-one coverage against our run game. And I think he's shown the ability to just house people Randy Moss style down the field and get open with his speed and size. So he'll be my number three. Why don't you go ahead, take the next two. Uh, I like it. I was trying to leave Tony off my list. See, Alan can see my screen, and I cannot see Alan's screen. It's one of the ways we, <laughs> we have the show notes here. And I tried to leave a couple guys off the list that maybe Alan wouldn't recognize in the early rounds, which, of course, yeah, I knew he knew about them. But that was one of them with Tony. I was like, oh, maybe he'll just fall asleep for a second. Couldn't steal that one. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna stick with, and this is, a fu- this is really a for-fun pick. I'm going to pick Dre Massey. And why am I picking Dre Massey? Because every single year I've picked Dre Massey, and he's <laughs> done absolutely nothing. I believe that Dre Massey can do stuff. I've seen him when the ball is in his hands, and he can make things happen. So I'm going to just say Dre Massey for consistency's sake. And then another homer pick here as well. I think, and this is actually for real, and and I think Voshan Joseph playing one of the outside positions in the 3-4 defense could be an absolute wrecking ball. I thought he Mm. progressed as the season went on. He had some very low points. He's a project guy. Uh, I thought he progressed as the season went on. He needs to add more weight in the offseason. He needs to get more serious about, I think, understanding the nuances of the game. But it'll be his junior season. He's got a lot of experience. I think in that position, it's very, very free in that 3-4 position, and you're more protected than you are how we're playing defense uh, under under the pass regime with Randy Shannon, I think he could have a really nice season. And it's also a homer pick because I like the guy, and a lot of his other picks maybe they're a little more obvious, but I'm going to go Dre Massey for consistency, and Voshan Joseph, I do really think Voshan could have a breakout season next year in the 3-4, especially with the aggressive style we're going to take on. Wow. Dre Massey still lighting it up. I mean, I assume he'll still be around. I guess he's got another year. Um, uh, I'm going to go with a guy I think who could be a star for us in this alignment. And he's probably our most proven defensive player. And that's David Reese. Um, I think I could just see him being incredible at cleaning up stuff all over the field, getting us in our right fits and alignments. And maybe he's mo- are one of our most important players as well. Um, expecting a lot out of him. He's probably going to have to hold that linebacking core together again next year. And then I'm going to choose our boy Jabari Zuniga. I think he's got the speed and skills that he could line up in that 3-4 outside linebacker and really be a terror. And so probably rushing the passer most passer most of the time, but then being still being able to dr- drop out in coverage and do a credible job of covering people when he's asked to. Uh, he's got the size and speed He's not an overly big guy where I think he could fit in that three, four outside guy. For my last two picks, I'm going to piggyback on one you just made. And there's more obvious picks here. I'm kind of going with like the, let me give you the sleeper style picks. I'm not going to take Marco Wilson. I'm not going to take CJ Henderson. Instead, I'm going to take Polite. That dude popped on film more last year than just about anyone else. And for the reason you just mentioned, Alan, he's tremendously quick. And I think you will see him play a lot of that 3-4 linebacker spot this upcoming season. I love his motor, and I think he's a breakout candidate. Uh, He's already a solid player, but I think this 3-4 could be a weird year for him. He fits in between linebacker and end in the system. Uh, I think he could have a nice season. I'm going to take him. And then for my final pick, I'm going to take TJ McCoy. The center position is going to be incredibly important, as it always is. But he's going to have to learn a whole new style 
of offense. He's going to have to learn all the new blocking terminology. He's going to have to lead the rest of his line mates, and he's going to have to get very, very good at making his calls uh, so that he can properly dictate where this offensive line is going to need to block on the zone read, the shotgun draw, and we know how important that run game is to this offense. And so he's going to have to be a key, key guy in leading the rest of the boys uh, heading into next season. All right, I guess I've only got one pick left. You're right. Marco Wilson and C.J. Henderson are probably higher up on the board if we're going to talk about skill and talent and future pro prospects. Those guys slot into any system. Just put them in there. They're going to do fantastic. I mentioned T.J. Slayton as a guy who I think is going to be really important in this defense. I'm not going to pick him yet either. Almost pick Antonius Clayton just because of his sheer talent, and maybe he could be in that Zuniga-type role. But I'm going to pick a guy named Kenmore Gamble, who barely played this year. I think he's the only real tight end on our roster who has any kind of future. Um, Now we're going to hopefully bring in a bunch of freshmen. But I think the tight end could be really big in this offense, and he's the only guy, at least from a profile standpoint, that I could see – Um fitting that bill. So that's a total wild card. There's other guys who are better, but again, taking a little bit of a wild card there. And maybe you'll hear the name Kenmore Gamble a lot next year. Hope he stays in the program. I like that pick. I like that you went out like that. I think it's the right way to do a draft because why pick the guys you could just state that have already done well? Pick the guys that may become true ballers, right? Pick the sleepers, pick the middle round guys. So at this point in time, it's tempting for us to go through bowl games and give you a playoff prediction. We're going to wait because we've already given you two hours of excellent content on this very pod. And we're going to save something for next Monday because we got to give you more pods throughout the holiday season. But we are going to spend a couple of minutes talking about Gator basketball tonight. Florida takes on Florida State in the exact tech arena, known to most of us as the O-Dome uh, forevermore. Allen, great game on tap tonight. I cannot wait to watch this Gator basketball team come out after that Duke loss, uh, play against a good Florida State team, an athletic Florida State team here at home. Should be super fun, 9 p.m. tip tonight. What do you think about this game? Uh, I know that you're not going to be watching it because it's like 4 or 5 in the morning for you, but (laughs) what are your thoughts on the game? Uh, Do you think the Gators pull it out? And do you think, I'm going to ask you a bonus question here, give me what you think the performance of three gore is going to be like he really struggled last weekend does he bounce back or should we expect more of the same from him okay now uh, i'm i want this game i'm i might just go social media silent here and try to watch the game on replay when i get back home tomorrow afternoon um we'll see if i can pull that off so i'm i'm stoked for this game i need a win against fsu so hopefully we pull this off I got to see FSU play that much, only vaguely aware of them. I haven't got to see them play at all, only really kind of know their profile and their statistics. But we should win this game. I'm hopefully we're just going to pound them. I don't think they can keep up with this offensively. Now, can we defend them as well as we want to? Hopefully, yes. And I think three Gore is going to go off. I think he's back uh, at the O-Dome where he shot well before. And he's going to hopefully be a learned a little bit of patience um, going through some of those stretches, take some smart shots, get rolling early. So expect 25 points from him tonight. This is an interesting game. Florida State is good. 
They are athletic, and they've essentially played nobody. They have not had a single quality opponent to play against. They won their first game of the season, or I'm sorry, their most recent game of the season against Rutgers in a game that was close and it was well contested. But they haven't really faced anyone. Wins against Citadel, wins against uh, Kennesaw, wins against Colorado State, Fordham. So they're not tested like we are. I expect us with the week off after the frustrating taste in our mouth to cover this nine-point spread. We're favored by nine. Uh, Florida State's a high-scoring team. We're a much higher-scoring team. I think at this point in time, we're not going to lose a lot of games this season. And, and I'm with you, Alan. I need a win against Florida State, but I need like an embarrassing demolition. I want a basketball clinic where we just smoke them uh, and really put them to shame and let them know that, hey, Florida State, you lost Jimbo. Whoever you hire is not going to be good enough, and you're losing basketball. <laughs> and it's back to the way things should be, which is Florida beating Florida State starting tonight in December of 2017. Uh, but I do look forward to seeing how we manage the end of the game. Here's something to look forward to on the next and no side. If we have a lead, a double-digit lead with, let's say, 10 minutes left to go in the game, eight minutes left to go in the game, watch for Florida to finish the game very aggressively. I do not expect them to make the mistakes they made against Duke where they essentially took the air out of the ball. They played shot clock basketball. I think that Mike White's too smart for that, and this team is going to play Golden State Warriors basketball, where regardless of the lead, they play the way they know how to play, which is fast, aggressive on offense, shots early in the shot clock when they're good. And I expect to see that from here on out. So look for that today, the first game after that Duke game, for a marked change in how the Gators handle having a lead this evening. All right, Alan, any other thoughts before you wrap us up here on the show? That's it. I hope for a big Gator win tonight. Um, I wish I could be there in the O-Dome with you. Uh, you know, I'm sure you'll be there on the super system getting it done. Uh, and you know what? Every week, there's always a ton of stuff to talk about. So we're going to keep this thing rolling through the offseason. Uh, like us on Facebook if you haven't yet. Tell people about the show. We really love doing it for you guys, and we'll see you next week. When you're well-dressed, people say, Nice suit. When you're best dressed, they say, Nice suit. The JCPenney Men's Best Dressed event is happening now. Score 50% off men's select suit separate, sport coats, and dress pants from Collection by Michael Strahan, Stafford, and JFJ Farrar. And for big and tall guys, shop Shaquille O'Neal, XLG, and more. Plus, get an extra 25% off with your JCPenney credit card and coupon. JCPenney. Offers valid 912 to 918. Credit offer subject to credit approval. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.